to the Sojourn Church podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N, Tulsa.org. Good morning. It's good to be in the house of the Lord with you guys this morning. Um, I'm going to try to hold myself together in this psalm because it has wrecked me has changed me and is continually changing me and so I hope that uh, if anybody gets anything out of this this morning that it pulls you to the edge of your seat longing to see Christ for who he is um, I'm excited to preach this morning I uh, will be the first to admit I'm by no means an eloquent speaker but by no means polished or seasoned in preaching. But I stand truly in confidence behind His Word that it will not return void. It truly pierces every bone and joint, convicts and leads us to Himself. So I stand here with confidence in His Word today to present this psalm that we've been working, we've been working through the psalms this summer, and uh, we've uh, talked about thankfulness and gratitude. We've seen that in Psalm 136. Talk about hope. Sujin talked about hope in Psalm 81. Humility in Psalm 25 and 88, and then we had a guest speaker last week, Nathan from Kentucky, who talked about Psalm 67, witnessing and discipling how we should be living our lives for the kingdom. And so today we're going to be in Psalm 51. If anybody knows Psalm 51, it's a heavy passage because it talks about confession. It reveals sin in our lives. Today, in in our culture, we don't like to talk about this. We like to move past it quickly. And I think, and I'm scared to death, that not only the tendency in our church, but the tendency in the churches across the nation that we have made Christianity mechanical. We've made it something we do on Sunday. I don't know if you guys know that there's about 50 Sundays in a given year. And I'm afraid that sometimes our Christianity, our relationship with Christ, comes down to a Sunday. And we lose sight of the joy of His salvation. Three beautiful songs that Brad led us through this morning, all pointing to a beautiful Savior. And sometimes we just sing these songs Every Sunday, we know them, and sometimes we don't slow down to just truly see the lyrics that we're really singing, the, who these lyrics are pointing to. 
So, if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open to Psalm 51. We will get there, but I kind of want to just read kind of a context of why this psalm was written. So, so King David wrote this psalm after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So this, the psalm is titled, Create in Me a Clean Heart, O God. So we're going to talk about confession, what true confession looks like, or what our response to sin should be. But before we do that, I just want to read the story to you guys. A lot of us know the story. In 2 Samuel, in chapter 11. So we're going to do a lot of reading here in the Old Testament, so bear with me. If you don't have, uh, it may not be on the screen, it probably is not, but if you don't have your Bible, just try to listen in here. It's a pretty plain, simple story. Chapter 11, verse 1, In the spring of the year, the time when king, kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Am- Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. And then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab and sent, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and not go down to his, his own house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why do you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and may the Lord Joab, the servants of my Lord, are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also and tomorrow, and I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with his servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And the letter he wrote said, Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was begging or besieging the city, he 
assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were violent men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the the king's anger rises, if he says to you, why do you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper milestone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came against us in the field. But he drove them back to the entrance of the gate, and the archers shot and your, servant from the, your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. And David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his, his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So just the story there of David on his couch, gets up, goes to this roof, sees a beautiful woman bathing, calls to her, he lays with her, she becomes pregnant, and he tries to hide it by calling his, her husband out from war to get him to lay with her so that way could cover up the pregnancy and he wouldn't do it. A man of integrity wouldn't do it. And so then he covers it up by having the man killed. So it's easy to kind of read this as just a real quick story. But I want to read the next part of the chapter, this chapter 12. We're going to read the whole thing here. But this is Nathan who comes to David. The Lord sends Nathan to David. And I want you guys to hear here how David is confronted. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor, the rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he bought it up and grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of... Sorry. He was unwilling to take one of his own flock of, or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. 
And then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this, he deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if, there were, if this were too little, I would have added as much, much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will rise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun." For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, and the child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. There was a man that come to a brother sent by God to tell him a parable, a little story, to expose his sin. And David is in the story, right? He's listening intently. And he sees the, how injustice, the ridiculousness of this man who is rich to take something of this poor man who had one thing because of selfishness. And it angered him. And he knew what was right. And he said that this man deserves to die and it be restored to the poor man four times. And then Nathan drops the mic, right? Boom. You're the man. So sometimes we can read these stories And just see David as a character in the story. Right? We know stories of the Bible. And sometimes they're just characters to us. And sometimes we don't really see how this applies to us today. How does the Old Testament here apply to us? This psalm that is being written from this thing that has taken place and is given to us, and how does it apply to us? I mean, just think about that for a second. Okay, we know that the Psalms are songs that we're saying, right? Can you imagine your sin being displayed for all the world to know it? To sing about the mercies of God? To know deeply the sins that you committed? I'll be honest, that's the farthest thing that I want. My heart, my nature is to not let my sin be exposed. 
And I'm hoping today, my prayer is today, that we could have a higher intensified view of sin. Because if we have that, then the cure to that will blow us away. The good news of Christ will become real and not mechanical. So, that's just the story that kind of sets up this for Psalms 51. So we're just going to slowly work through this. And uh, I'll be the... <laughs> either um, the Lord wanted me to have very few notes going into this, or Satan took away my notes. I'm not really sure, but my computer decided to crash at 4 o'clock yesterday and take away half my notes. So, um, but I truly think that God has allowed this passage to come alive. And I hope that it draws you to the edge of your seats to see that we need to see our dependence on Christ. We need to see and reevaluate a severity of how we view our sin. So that way we can be changed and gripped by and all the more motivated to hold on to this Jesus who has paid the price for us. So let's look at Psalm 51. Verse 1, it says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. It's easy to just read that. Have mercy on me, O God. We know what mercy is, right? It's, it's a, you're not getting what you deserve. Someone who's pleading for mercy, they know they are guilty. And they're pleading to not get what they deserve. Just think about that. This psalm started to come alive. You know, I'll, I'll be honest, guys. A lot of times I read the Word, go to church, hear sermons, I sing songs, and it's not alive. Kind of go through the motions. I become desensitized to sin in my life because I'm comparing myself to others. And so, mercy, I know it. Grace, I know it. But the reason why this starts to come alive is when you put yourself in the position that you are not getting what you deserve. The seriousness of sin. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned. Some bigger than others, but that's the problem, guys, is we are comparing ourselves to the big sins instead of one sin, one wrongdoing deserves punishment. And that's because we have lowered our view of God 
that he's holy, holy, holy. There are angels for eternity. That's all they say. Holy, holy, holy. We can't even comprehend the magnitude of this God. But when you do, mercy becomes real. Your plea for mercy is along with David's. That God, give me mercy. Don't give me what I deserve. I deserve to be separated from you for eternity. And anything apart from that is God's mercy going beyond what we deserve. It says, blot out my transgressions. Sometimes I read that, it's like, I want the thought of sin to be blotted out so that I don't have to wrestle with it anymore. That I can be cleansed from it and feel better about myself. That's not what David's saying here. He's saying blot out my transgressions from you, your perspective, God, from your stance. He's not confessing sin for him to make light of it, for his life to be better. He goes to verse 2, he says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Wash me. Who? Who needs to blot it out? Who needs to wash him? It's the Lord. How do we wash ourselves? Going to church regularly? I mean, what's the standard that we have made for ourselves in washing? See, David here is trying to intensify the magnitude of his sin. He sees it as sin, period. And he says that. He said, Against you, God, I have sinned, right? Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Iniquity is crooked ways, wrongdoing. And cleanse me from my sin. Do you feel the need to be cleansed this morning? Because if you do, that is good. It's good. There's going to be people, there's churches in our culture that don't want you to feel that. They want you to look good, hide sin. Definitely don't confess it. Don't let it be exposed to others. Cleanse me from my sin. There's a dependence upon God. 
a need for God. Verse 3 says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Do you have one of those? Five years ago? Maybe last week? Is your sin ever before you? The weight of sin should feel heavy. It should feel heavy. And the reason why is because you see Christ in a different light. You can see him for who he really is. Sometimes I think, in, uh, especially in our circles of churches with, with Reformed theology and a high view of doctrine and theology, which is good, it's good. You know, sometimes we preach Romans 3, that we're all dead in our trespasses and sins. And sometimes I, it's very important, don't get me wrong here, it is very important to preach that because people don't view sin as sin. They don't see the severity of it. But sometimes I think that people are left there. They want people to see their severity of sin and they're never pointed to a hope. That's not the goal here today, guys. I want and pray that we have a new sense of sin in our lives. That it is heavy on our hearts. That we wage war against it. To the smallest degree, the way you talk to your wife, the small little mis thing, integrity thing that you know you should have done but you don't do, whether that be at work or just laziness. That we wake up and we see that this is just sin in our lives. It's lack of seeing God for who He is. So I want it to be heavy, but I want it to pull yourself to the end of your seat today, longing for this hope in Christ. Because there is hope. There is forgiveness. And we see that. We've seen it in the story, right? That Nathan told David that you have been forgiven. Let that soak in for a second. Are you okay with that? I'm not going to lie, I struggle with that. What if you're Bathsheba's dad, mom? The sins that were committed to her. Put yourself in that situation and God forgives it? Why? How can He do that and be good and just? It's because of His Son. 
Let me show you. In Romans 3, 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. And it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I don't know how that works for David. He didn't know who Jesus was. But he believed God. He had faith in God that he would pay for his sins. We even see that in the psalm later on about the sacrifice of bulls, that he would have none. None of it. Sometimes we confuse the Old Testament and how they were saved. But the only way the Old Testament people were saved was because of what Christ has done. But the amazing thing about that, guys, is we live on this side of the cross. We know the full picture. We have heard it. Some of us truly, we believe it. And we still can walk away from it. My, my thoughts had kind of went all over the place in this psalm. And a, a couple of weeks ago, we watched uh, Pilgrim's Progress with our kids. And that broke me. In a way, it's never broke me. Because the picture there of Vanity Fair, when the traveler comes to Vanity Fair, and I'm just like, man, we live in it. We breathe it. We love it. I'm not saying it's sinful to live in, in America. But how do we live in the world and not be of the world? we got to think about that, guys. And that's what I'm saying is we can hear the Old Testament story of Nathan exposing David and say, you are the man. But how are we the man? The woman? The person? In what ways are we living like the world? In our city, this area, the only thing they're going to see is cleaned up Christians saying, act better, do right. Or do they see a people who, yes, pursues things in the world, but is not consumed by them. Who has dreams and ambitions and desires to go to school, to, be, to chase careers, to be successful. Nothing evil or wrong about that unless it has consumed you 
unless it has become your idol. Do not be like the world. We know that, right? We know that. So are you the man this morning? The woman this morning? Being exposed to sin? Areas that we have kind of drifted off? Allowed our Christian life to become mechanical? Back to verse 3, he says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. You know, when we talk about confession, sometimes we confess because we're caught. And I was thinking about this. You know, I have young kids. And when our kids do something to the other, you know, we tell them to apologize. And they feel bad because they're caught. And they give the, I'm sorry. Don't even look at them, you know. Then you're trying to teach them, hey, look at their eyes. You're trying to teach them to really mean it. <laughs> trying to lead a heart to mean it. You can't. You can't change that heart. Only God can change that heart. But you lead them to there. You lead them to there. And I was thinking about that, and I'm like, I'm no different. I'm supposedly more mature, but I'm no different than my four-year-old or my seven-year-old. When I confess my sin because I'm caught, I'm exposed, maybe by another brother or sister, maybe by your spouse. So there's some guilt, so I confess my sin, and then I make those promises to God, I'm never going to do it again. I'm sorry, God. And maybe you set boundaries for yourself. And those are all good things. I'm not making light of any of those things. Maybe you try to make some radical changes in your life. You get rid of, maybe it's a computer in your, in your house. Maybe it's TV. Maybe it's a distraction. Maybe you're so radical that you go back to the old flip phone. I don't know what that is for you. I'm not going to put on that in your life. But you know, if you take time, the Spirit will reveal it to you. He will reveal your confession and how light we have made our confessions. And the lighter we make our confessions... There's no freedom in it. You will not truly be set free. So David, he doesn't try to make excuses for his sin. That's what I do. I'll be the first to admit that. Wrong my wife. Well, here, let me give you a reason. You know, I'm stressed, I'm busy. You get sideways with a coworker, or say something you shouldn't, disrespect your parents. Well, I mean, here's what's going on, you know? Oh no, that's not what David does. He intensifies his sin. My sin is ever before me. I can't stop seeing it. I wake up and it's there. 
And that's healthy and good. Because God can then remove the guilt of that sin. And you can be made clean because of Christ. When there's real confession, when there's real repentance. If not, there's no freedom. We're just putting bondage on ourselves. My sin is ever before me. I want to make another note of this. I heard a sermon here not too long ago. It'll be at the, on a slide as far as, as, far as a, a resource. And there's lots of good sermons out there. We can all share them with one another. Maybe we need to do that more through the week. Maybe that helps spur each other on. Maybe we're scrolling through Facebook too much. Maybe you get back to the old YouTube sermons and share them with one another. But there's one by a pastor... His name's Ryan Fullerton, and he talks about his father-in-law in this sermon. And his father-in-law had become a pastor and then was exposed for pornography and sexual sin and had to step out of the pulpit and then just went to work as a UPS driver. And he talks about this man in a way that he is not in any way trying to hide it. He will let people talk about it, his sin. There's one part in it when one of his sons is going through a meeting and kind of embellishes the sin in a way. And the man's response was, man, it is so good for me to be reminded to just soak in and think about the heaviness of sin and the separation that it causes between me and my God. He doesn't try to excuse it. And that's different. It's almost weird. I think it made me kind of think back of a young man who came up asking for some counsel. Barely even knew him. I'm not even sure why he was seeking my counsel, but he had newly married and kind of was exposed to some flirtation and some sexual sin that wasn't his wife. And he was coming to me and he was... I could see he was broken. And I listened and I'm... I didn't know what to say. wasn't even sure why he was coming to me. I felt like he could have went to some others for some real direct counsel. So it almost made me kind of think, maybe he's avoiding it. I don't know. And the only thing that I felt like the Spirit led me to say was, you don't deserve to be forgiven. And he got offended. He wanted his wife to forgive him. So he could move past this to restore their marriage. And I told him, I said, brother, the only way you can restore your marriage is to see that you don't deserve it. You don't deserve to be forgiven. 
That's hard. And it's easy to give that kind of counsel when you're not in the one in that situation. But man, I walked away from that going, God, it's only by your grace. That would be me. I don't deserve to be forgiven. And I walk around like I am. Because I'm comparing my sins to others rather than to a holy, holy God. So church, let sin ever before be ever before your eyes. Don't move past it quickly. Because it will allow you to run to the cross. Crushed, but not in despair. There's hope in this Jesus. This Jesus is not just some story. This some character in the Bible. He is your Savior. He was punished. He was crushed for your sin. We're on this side of that cross. We see it. We have the Gospels. We have the Word. We should every day, one little glimpse, God, I just want to see how you acted, how you treated people. I just want to be with you. But maybe I have become that man distracted by Vanity Fair, consumed by the world. A little thing I forgot to mention in that story in the Old Testament, nine months went by before Nathan came to David. Nine months! A man after God's own heart. You would think after the first sin of adultery that he would have been broken. What have I done? He was seared. His conviction was seared. And it was God's grace to send a messenger to point out his sin. Who knows? We don't know. Who knows? Another three years could have went by before he repented. The reason why I bring that point up, guys, is because we're really quick to judge others and assume things of others. And we do it because it makes us feel better about our position with Christ. Oh man, they say, oh, it doesn't really look like they've repented. They're not out there tearing their clothes, bawling their eyes out in remorse. I don't think that's real repentance. I didn't do that. I regularly go to church. I tithe. I'm trying to witness to others. 
What are you measuring it by? It has to be Christ's work on the cross. It's the only way one is saved. That's it. Verse 4, he says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. The last part of that verse kind of goes back to Romans 3, what I just read. That he can be a just judge. That he can pardon sin because of Christ. And it's interesting that he says, against you and you only have I sinned. And that's what I'm saying. When we intensify our view of sin, it really takes us back to Christ, to God. The wrongdoing that we've committed is against God. He didn't talk about how he wronged Bathsheba, how he wronged her family, how he wronged the kingdom. Those were all consequences of his sin, for sure. But he sees that he has wronged God and Him only. You know, in verse 7 it says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hyssop was a branch that was used. Um, they usually would dip it in blood. Um, go into a house that would have like a disease and they'd wash it and then they would uh, drip that hyssop branch, basically signifying that it's been clean. You can go back into the house and not be get this disease. You've been washed. And again, he, he's running back to who does the washing. It's not some priest with this hyssop branch. He knows that he needs to be washed by God and God alone. So, I'm going to skip a few of these verses. I'm going to challenge you to take some weeks. Hopefully, the, the, this week is just go into this chapter. Just read it over and over again. Let it be a mirror to your life. But in verse 12, he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your willing spirit. Sometimes I misuse the word your and my in the, in the context of salvation. A lot of times, what Christ has done it was for me. And so it's my salvation. It is. It was done for me. 
But the reason why I mix that up is because somewhere in there, I start to think I deserved it, or I've done something, or I've, it's Jesus plus me doing works that saves me. And so that word, your salvation, really stood out to me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, God. Not my own. I think about it, guys. I think about the times I sin, and because I know better, I put myself in like this time out. Oh, I can't read my Bible. You know, I'm going to let some time go by and prove that I haven't jumped back into the sin. And then I read my Bible and then I start sharing the gospel. It makes me feel real good. That's my salvation. That's what I'm saying, guys. That's not the gospel. That's bondage. That's not freedom. And I'm afraid, guys, that's the picture we give others. Don't let your sin be exposed. We don't, oh, I, that's, I don't know. I mean, he's forgiven me for my sins, but I don't know if he can go that far. <laughs> that's just your salvation, the one that you've created instead of. God's. And it's interesting, it's interesting that in this psalm, guys, he never repents of the sin of adultery, the sin of murder or pride. It's very generic. It is just sin in general. And so, I want us to see this just in closing, okay? I want us to see this. This is that part where, man, it should be pulling us to the edge of our seats. That when we see our dependence on God, when we magnify and intensify our sin, and we know the gospel and believe it and turn away from our sin, there is salvation. There is salvation. And it's interesting to me that he doesn't confess one particular sin. He's saying, I need cleansed from sin in general. That's how serious it is. But then he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. The reason why he got up from the couch and went out on the roof and fell into sin is because the joy of his salvation was lost. Forgotten. And that's what I'm saying, guys. We're on this side of the cross. We know the story right? We know it. We can tell it to others. We believe it. And we go through our life not eagerly waiting upon the Lord, asking Him to change us, 
desiring to just be with him. The joy of our salvation, maybe we forgot it. So I hope today that's what brings you back to the edge of your seat saying, Jesus, I need you and you alone. Because when you see that, when I see that, there's cleansing and there's running to Him. The guilt has been washed away. The mark of a true Christian, guys, the mark of a true Christian is we shouldn't be afraid of confessing sin. We should be wanting it exposed to the hundred millionth degree. And the reason why is because we know that we are no longer defined by that. We're defined by a Savior, perfect, who was tempted in every way and did not sin And then God the Father crushing him, pouring out the full wrath that you and I deserve. And Jesus didn't open his mouth. He had every right. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, he was silent. Why? For you, for me. This gospel, this Jesus should move us every day. And it doesn't. And that's because I minimize sin in my life. I don't see it as the severity that it is. He ends the psalm by saying, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, repentant heart, O God, you will not despise. If you're broken today, and I hope that the Spirit is allowing it to be heavy, because if you're broken, God won't despise you. He's run to you. That's marvelous. In all honesty, there's not enough words to describe that. Why? Why God show mercy? The mark of a true Christian knows 
they deserve punishment. Knows that God would be just to send them to hell for eternity. It's what I deserve. Or, we think, we live, oh God, you, you know my life. I'm, I'm going to church. I mean, I'm trying to witness to others. I mean, look at them. I, I'm, not, I'm not doing that. You will not, I will not be accepted in the kingdom of God on those terms. He won't despise you, the brokenhearted, because he did not crush his son in vain. There is freedom today. I hope that we don't move past this quickly. That's my prayer. Not only for you, but for me. Because that is my tendency. My human nature is to move past quickly. I hope that today this really soaks in and puts you on a trajectory to not be afraid to confess sin because you want it gone and you want full freedom in Christ. Whether that be you stepping out of this building and sinning immediately or months go by before you recognize that there's sin in your life. Either or, we got to see that we never, ever move past a dependence on Christ. So let this be a time for us to examine our lives. Let this be heavy on our hearts. But let it not lead us to despair because we have a hope in Christ. Oh, He is good. Isn't He? He is good. Let us pray. God, You truly are good. Because You have not given us what we deserve. Because You punished you crush your son. God, change us. Help us, God, to live in this world and not be of the world. God, let us not be afraid to confess sin. God, I pray for the people in this room. We may be small in number, but this is your church. This is your people. You know you see us gathered here today. I pray, God, that we would be marked as a people who are willing to confess sin.
who see our dependence on You. Because that points people to a living God. That points people to Your Son. God, I pray that Your name would be honored and glorified this morning. I pray, God, that this would sit heavy on our hearts, but it wouldn't lead us to despair. That the veil would be removed for us to see Christ for who He truly is. Afresh today. New today. Help me to examine myself daily, God. Let it be our heart's cry that we need You. That we gathered here this morning because we need You. We want You. Let there not be a subtlety of pride in our heart that we don't heart that we don't see. A spiritual arrogance. A spiritual pride that we're blinded to because we know You. We do things for You. God, come revive our hearts again afresh today. Let us see Christ again and again and again for who you are. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.